Hey everyone, welcome to Anjali Vision, a monthly podcast hosted by me, Anjali Misra. I'm a Chicago-based freelance writer and a community organizer, and also a general pop culture trivia savant. Each episode, I offer my best analysis of current shows across multiple platforms and genres, and interview guests about their favorite TV shows or current obsessions. Come for the intersectional feminist critiques of popular media, stay for the deep conversations with folks from a variety of backgrounds about what they love or hate to watch. Welcome to episode eight, everyone. I am so, so excited um, for this episode. I'm really excited to share my interview with my high school buddy, Don, uh, Don Borchert, had a really lovely conversation with me about indigenous-led media. And later on in the episode, I'll also share my favorite, my own favorite work by Native American creators, some TV shows that I have really enjoyed recently. But before I do that, I just wanted to contextualize this episode within the current moment. Yeah, uh, while November is recognized in the United States as Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month, um, as I record this, Uh, Indigenous communities around the world are calling for a ceasefire in Palestine, uh, where the United Nations has declared a humanitarian crisis. At the same time, the U.S. has abstained from voting in a United Nations resolution that calls for urgent and extended pauses in the Israeli army's bombardment of Gaza, which has been ongoing for the last 42 days just grounding us in this moment, I wanted to share the words of Mohawk writer and activist Rowan White, who expressed her support on social media. She said, I stand with Palestinians as they seek liberation from occupation because I know what it's like to live under ongoing settler colonialism and occupation here in the U.S., The so-called independence and freedom of the United States is built upon the blood of my indigenous ancestors. The U.S. Revolution was a chapter of our apocalypse. That is why this current nightmare in the Middle East is so deeply triggering for us native people of Turtle Island. We carry the scorched earth and burnt cornfields, the long walks and trail of tears, the piles of slaughtered buffalo and wounded knee in our blood and bones. The U.S. has grown from the soil where my ancestors are buried and continues to perpetuate endless cycles of violence. Indigenous liberation struggles across the globe are intertwined. So as I mentioned in my last episode, I will continue to share links and resources for folks to demand a ceasefire. And then I guess lastly, before I get into it, I wanted to invoke some what I felt were inspiring words from Michelle Ganem, who is a TV critic, writer for The Cut, and runs a very incredible social media account called TV Scholar. Um, and actually, like in a lot of ways, was the inspiration for me doing this podcast. He had shared something recently that really resonated with me, which was that. Despite working on an unrelated day job, running my Instagram, writing a newsletter, freelancing, television continues to feel like a blessing and a site of constant discovery rather than a chore. 
Television is the one thing in my life that feels joyful to catch up on, rather than existentially painful, like other aspects of being on this planet. Being able to watch television in community is simply what keeps me going. I want to emphasize this importance of community, right? And I consider the folks who listen to this podcast as a part of my sort of like TV community. Beyond that, I encourage everyone to take to heart uh, the words of the activist Ashton Berry, who said in times of struggle to ask ourselves, where is our community? Not just our personal community, but our political communities. If you don't have one, find one. Feelings of exhaustion are exasperated by feelings of helplessness. Feeling helpless is a centering of I, not we. Community calls us back to the we and the magic of collective action. You cannot do this alone. No one can. We must not continue the culture of isolation in our efforts to activate. So I hope folks will carry that sentiment in your hearts and minds. Yeah, with that, I uh, would love to move into um, some sharings of what I've been <laughs> what I've been enjoying watching. Honestly, I could do a whole episode about reservation dogs. <laughs> but maybe down the line I will. For now, I want to absolutely recommend this show. If folks who are not familiar or haven't watched it, Reservation Dogs aired for three seasons. There were no plans to extend it beyond three seasons. But yeah, the final season just wrapped in 2023, aired on FX. I watched it on Hulu. Reservation Dogs is about four indigenous teenagers living in rural Oklahoma, navigating the recent death of their best friend Daniel, while also navigating young adulthood. One of the things I absolutely love, love, love about this show is the ability in terms of not only the writing and the direction and the performances, but all of that uh, coming together (laughs) to tell stories each episode that are like simultaneously uh, deeply personal and intimate while also being very ubiquitous, relatable. Um, There were so many episodes where I was just like moved to tears because even though I'm not an indigenous American, my family are immigrants from India, I just, just still felt that so many of the episodes and the storylines and plots were so relatable that I felt like I grew up with the characters. And I was recently uh, talking to some folks about how underrated Reservation Dogs is and how, you know, so many people talk about how much they loved the series, but it didn't really get the sort of fanfare that other shows that aired at the same time that those shows got. I'm thinking of, again, completely unrelated, not in any way 
similar to Reservation Dogs, but shows like The White Lotus and like Succession that were like unanimously praised by critics and like audiences alike have won awards and things like that. Reservation Dogs didn't really experience that. I think that it's definitely been the sleeper hit where over the years since it aired in 2021 until this final season aired in 2023, it has rightfully won a handful of awards, Independent Spirit Award, a a Peabody Award. It's been nominated for Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, Writers Guild, Primetime Emmy. It just hasn't experienced the kind of fanfare that I think that it has deserved. And, and, And maybe that is fine. Maybe that's for the best. Some shows aren't just like meant to be like cult classics. I really do see this as being a show that sort of gets celebrated and studied and emulated even down the line. Again, just for its ability to tell deeply relatable stories within this broader, almost like mythic scale. Okay, and the last few things I'll say about Reservation Dogs, because you better believe down the line I will have a full episode dedicated to this series. But yeah, the last thing I'll say is that the show was such a wonderful display of some of the heavy hitters of Native performing artists, like the milieu of Native performing artists, folks like... Zahn McLaren and Dallas Goldtooth and Gary Farmer, people like Wes Study and Lily Gladstone, Graham Greene, incredible folks. Another series I wanted to review was Trickster, which was a Canadian series that I was able to watch through AMC. It was a supernatural thriller that only aired for one season in 2020 with six episodes. Just another one of those shows that I think told, again, like a deeply relatable story of a young person's coming of age set in this very supernatural mythic landscape. The series centers on Jared, an indigenous Heisla teenager and small-time drug dealer in Kitimat, British Columbia, who becomes increasingly aware of the magical events that seem to follow him. Even though it was lauded as being like really well done by critics, one of the reasons that it only aired for six episodes in one season is because of some broader concerns within the production team about the indigenous ancestry of folks on the production team, writing team, while overwhelmingly a number of the writers and co-producers and directors of the series are indigenous identified. Sadly, some controversy. But all that being said, I still feel that this was such a strong series, and I would have loved to see more seasons of Trickster through the leadership of the indigenous cast and crew that ideally would have stayed on through the production but sadly we will never know okay and i hate to share yet another show that i loved indigenous-led show that 
sadly got canceled, but Rutherford Falls, which I watched on Peacock, a sitcom that aired for two seasons from 2021 to 2022, is about 18 episodes. Again, for whatever reason, was canceled. Rutherford Falls was about two lifelong friends, Nathan Rutherford, played by Ed Helms, and Regan Wells, played by Janice Schmetting whose relationship is tested when a crisis hits their fictional small town. After the mayor decides to move a statue of Nathan's ancestor, the town founder, because drivers keep hitting it, Nathan begins a quest to keep the statue in its place. Meanwhile, Reagan has to juggle loyalty to her friend and to her people, the Minashanka Nation. She wants to develop a cultural center to highlight their history. Rutherford's ancestor has become known for attacks on her people in the colonial era. Terry Thomas, a character played by Michael Grayeyes, is the CEO of the Minashanka Casino, and he is interested in gaining power for his people and family. So I'm notoriously famous amongst very few people for disliking sitcoms. This is Rutherford Falls is one of the rare occasions where I will endorse a sitcom. <laughs> but yeah, one of the reasons I like this show is because it does a really good job of taking very sort of contemporary issues of race, class, gender, like domestic politics and like funneling it down to very digestible, mm, approachable topics. Again, I'm not a huge fan of the sitcom format, nor am I a massive fan of making complex issues digestible. I get the appeal. I understand why certain things need to be made plain for not only younger viewers, but for example, for folks to talk to their kids about, or the fact that we live in this country that we live in. And like, how do we talk about that? Maybe a sitcom is a good way to navigate that with your youngsters. In that respect, I think Rutherford Falls is actually one of the better sort of avenues through which to do that, as long as folks are using TV as their method of education, because certainly we can't rely upon other forms of education in this current moment. That all aside, strictly from a television critic lens, I think, yeah, the writing is really solid in Rutherford Falls. The acting is really solid. This is, again, a show that is like co-created, co-starring, co-produced by indigenous creators and artists and that shines through in the content of every episode which is why i'm a little bit disappointed that it didn't get renewed for a third season or beyond these two seasons but i do know as well that a number of the folks involved have gone on to do really incredible work and for example michael gray eyes has done some incredible film and television work both prior to and after being on Rutherford Falls, as well as Jana Schmeiding and apologies if I'm mispronouncing her last name. Definitely want to plug Rutherford Falls as a show to watch. Okay, so now without further ado is my interview with Don Borchert. I will 
kick it to the interview for Dawn to introduce herself and share a bit more about her work in Indigenous-led media. Thanks again, Dawn, for being on Anjali Vision. So happy to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be speaking with you today. And yeah, my first question off the bat is, I know that you work in like the film and television industry, would love to hear more about exactly what your role is, how you came to be involved in the work that you do. So yeah, I'll let you take that away. Yeah. So I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is how I know you from high school. And I went to school at UW, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for film, which was like an experimental film program, which I really loved. It was really like an art school and built a foundation of how I got into the industry. But specifically, I worked at the UWM Union Cinema as a theater manager, and we would have different small film festivals come through. Like we had an LGBTQ film festival, like a French film festival, Italian film festival. And they were just some of my favorite parts of working at that theater. And I didn't realize that was like a whole industry in the world, but I had so much fun when I was doing them. And when I graduated, I needed to have a job after college because you had to be a student to work there. I started working at the Milwaukee Film Fest, which was like only in its second or third year because it's still like a rather new film festival. And we had a smaller team there. And I felt like I was really able to grow and learn about film festivals through those people and realize that there's like a whole film fest circuit of people who travel around the country and work at festivals. And so that's what I started doing. And I was really lucky to be able to jump pretty quickly from Milwaukee Film Fest to Sundance, which really opened my eyes to the indie film world and a lot of people who were working all over the country and filmmakers and things like that. So that's kind of how I started. And then since then, I've been working a ton of different film fests. And let's see, what else do I, I work in operations, I work in operations for different film festivals a lot. So it's like the inner workings of film festivals, but I really also love programming, which is helping to select the films and curate what people are watching and requires watching different films and knowing about the industry and what filmmakers are up and coming and building relationships with them. One of the things that I'm really proud of that I did was produce the Freeland Film Festival, which I did help get it started. And it was ran for three years in Wisconsin pre-pandemic times. And it was really focused on largely documentaries, but some fiction films, but it was focused on like environmental film, anti-human trafficking and anti-wildlife trafficking and a lot of Native American focus, like land rights films. So that was something that was a really big passion project for me. And I did it working for a nonprofit called Freeland. And so unfortunately that festival died with COVID, but it was really amazing. And one of my things that I'm most proud of and accomplishments in the industry. But now I'm doing my own thing with a podcast called Faux Real, where I'm really focusing on talking with indie documentary filmmakers, largely with stories that are inspiring in some capacity, whether that's environmental 
films or just supporting female or underrepresented filmmakers. And that's been my focus for the last couple of years. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that breakdown of like your journey thus far. (laughs) So cool to hear. I would love to hear a little bit more about your podcast. Actually, I know something we discussed was, oh, we're going to dive into these like media reviews and stuff. Mm -hmm. But because this is a podcast, I'd love to hear more about where you're at with your podcast. I know like you have paused, but what is the future? I started the podcast in January, 2020, and the intention was to travel to different film festivals and interview filmmakers in person. And I did that one time, which was Sundance 2020, and then a pandemic hit and I completely changed how I was doing that. But honestly, it was actually for the better in a lot of ways, because it's a lot more flexible to be able to do Zoom interviews with people. I have been doing it since yeah, January 2020. And I recently just had a baby and he is six weeks old. So that has been occupying all of my time. But I'm excited to get back into it. I've been reaching out to a few filmmakers in the last week or two. So I'm hoping to start recording again. Turns out having a baby is a lot of work and energy. But it's definitely something that like keeps me going. I have a full-time job and it's something that I'm passionate about. And I love to be able to do this on the side and just have something that is just for me. It's not something that I like make money off of or have any real expectations of, but it is something that I really love doing and I've gotten so much good feedback from it. It seems like other people like it too, which makes me really happy, but I really just am like doing it to connect with filmmakers and hopefully help get the word out about their films. So I'm doing like a lot of like I said, documentary interviews, and then I just put them out either in conjunction with when they're playing at a film festival, and you can see their film that way, or I release episodes in conjunction with their, like, wide release if they're showing films in theaters or, like, on PBS or wherever. So I'm trying to do it as also, like, promotion for their film as well as, like, just supporting their career in general. That's awesome. As a listener of the Faux Real podcast, like big fan. And so I'm definitely going to be putting like a plug for the pod in my show notes. Folks should definitely check it out. And yeah, happy to hear that it's just a temporary pause. And I think that there's definitely like a need moving forward for the kind of interviews you're doing. So this is great. Good to hear. Happy to hear it. Thank Um, you. Yeah, I try to really keep it like very human focused and I think a lot of the stories that are featured are personal stories and I'm really enjoying that and helping to get back into that because I think it's there's a lot of like really good conversations I think on there so I'm proud of it yeah for sure as you should be (laughs) but yeah I guess getting into the nitty-gritty because you are someone who like consumes media and talks to media makers and is like a part of that world. One of the reasons I had you on, particularly like this month being like Indigenous American Heritage Month, there is absolutely, in my opinion, a gap in terms of representation of, I I think we're seeing like a rise of Indigenous-led and Indigenous-created not only like film, but also television. 
in the U.S., as well as I would say Canada to some extent. I'm not as familiar, obviously, because I'm in the U.S. and that's what I have access to in terms of TV and film. But yeah, I know that you have not only worked with, but have interviewed Indigenous creators. And I'm someone who, you know, although I'm not Indigenous, my family are immigrants from South Asia. I have found that a lot of the Indigenous-led media that I've uh, watched has been, like, really familiar to me in a lot of ways. Like, maybe not necessarily, oh, I see myself in this character, but, like, very much, like, experiences of living in America (laughs) Uh, and like the struggle of that (laughs) and like the shared struggle of that that has really resonated with me personally and so yeah I'm just curious if there's like a piece of media that you would want to sort of highlight you and I talked about reservation dogs as something we've both watched curious like your thoughts on that show what you have liked what you've disliked etc I'll let you take it where you like (laughs) I will start by saying first I am a it's technically called a first generation descendant of the Menominee Nation so it's a tribe in northern Wisconsin I'm a mixed you know race woman and that's like the culture that I've always felt the closest to I still have family that live on the reservation and my mom splits her time between the reservation and her home in Southern Wisconsin. And so I've spent a lot of time there and that's really like the only, honestly, the only culture that I've actually felt like akin to. I'm also Mexican and Swedish and German, but I'm pretty like distant from those parts of my family or like the back family background. So it's the only thing I've been associated with growing up. So it's been really nice to see representation on screen like flourishing lately and I love Reservation Dogs that's show as everyone probably knows on Hulu made by Sterling Harjo who I did have on the podcast prior to Reservation Dogs he made a documentary called Love and Fury where he was uplifting a bunch of different Native American artists of various kinds mostly musicians What I really love about his show that I think also represents what you were just talking about, the growth of Native folks in media, which is that he has really supported a lot of different people early in their career through Reservation Dogs, which I think is amazing. There's uh, folks getting paid to be in the writer's room who have never been on TV show writer's room and making probably a pretty good salary, which is amazing, um, especially for being newer to the industry and like getting the opportunity now to work on other shows like Rutherford Falls or other even non-native shows and then he also allows different people to like have their first opportunity at directing one of the stars for example I'm not super familiar with her background but I believe her name is Debrie Jacobs she is one of the stars in the show and also directs one of the episodes which is amazing for her because to my understanding most of the folks who have acted in the show were just people who were hired from like an open casting call on his reservation in Oklahoma and now they're able to have these amazing careers because he gave new people the opportunity and 
when you do that, you're able to like really support a growing industry that didn't totally exist before. So that's my favorite thing about the show besides the actual show itself is the opportunities that it gave people. He had almost all native people in front of and behind the camera too, which is just incredible and unheard of. So that's, I can start with by saying that I love the representation that it's giving but also the opportunities that it's giving people that they didn't have before. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I think, again, as someone who glommed onto watching Reservation Dogs, like when the hype first started, it's a very short-lived series. And I've read some things, both from Sterling and other co-creators of the show and folks involved that it was never meant to be like a super long series. It felt right to make it just three seasons. But yeah, as someone who joined the journey (laughs) from season one and then was like completely enamored, loved everything about it, (laughs) have watched over the three season story arc. Yeah, it's been like really cool to see the ways that the performers, the writers, folks involved at various levels have gone on to do really cool other projects. This show is so special because one, it's really well made. It's won a ton of awards, not any Emmys, but it's won a lot of other awards. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have feelings about that. Yeah. (laughs) So it's getting recognition and notoriety, but it's also just giving people native people the chance to see themselves in a way that they've never seen themselves because there's indie films that are made by native filmmakers there's other native media out there but it's not necessarily as accessible the way reservation dogs is because it's on hulu and that's like a streaming service that almost everyone has and so you don't have to necessarily be like buy the movie or go to a film festival or go to a theater to go see it you can just watch it in your home which i think is pretty different than most other native media that i'm aware of So I think it's really an amazing thing for people to be able to see themselves. And I'm sure that's something that you can relate with what you're saying at the top of our conversation. You probably don't always get the chance to see yourself on screen and especially in such an accessible way. So I think it's really beautiful for that. But I also think that the way that this show is made is giving light to different aspects of what it's like to be Native because we have all these examples throughout film history of these native stereotypes of the stoic Indian or just like really traditional things and misunderstandings of what not all natives live in teepees, not all natives wear headdresses, not all natives are riding around on horses, all these different things that we see where we think that's how everyone is. Not everyone's always peaceful and getting along all the time. There's all these ideas that I think have been in film that this series touches on the all the other aspects and the real life parts of being Native. Having a sense of humor, I think, is a huge part of the show that we never see funny Natives. And like Dallas Goldtooth has a character where he's like a spirit, which I think touches on that because it's like really like making fun of, I think a lot of what we see on screen of he's a native spirit and he looks really traditional. He's riding a horse, but he's like funny as hell. And so (laughs) I think highlighting that. And I had brought up a quote from Sterling Harjo that I 
wanted to read that I thought was relevant to this. Please. So he's he co-created the show with Taika Waititi. He wrote most of, or at least had a hand in writing most of the episodes and directed some of them as the showrunner of the show. But he says, it shouldn't be a radical thing to show Native people doing normal things, but it turns out it is because we haven't been seen that way in the media. Sometimes showing the mundane can be the most radical. Native art isn't about getting rich. You do it because you want to express something that historically you haven't been provided a platform for and to say it with a freedom that may make people uncomfortable. We have all have these common obstacles that we face in life. I don't want to do that in a vacuum. I want non-Native people to enjoy my work. I also want to collaborate. Normalizing nativeness is really just being human. And that's what I'd like to see more of. I love that. Uh, so, yeah, I love it too. I just think he's really like creating a space that didn't exist in that way before. It's so interesting because like a number of folks in my life who have loved reservation dogs and when I press them and ask, what do you love about it? They're hard pressed to say exactly what it is, but my mom actually really was able to narrow it down in, a, in I think, a way that was really poignant and eloquent. She was like, I grew up seeing all of these very stereotypical stories of Native folks, and this was the first time I saw Native folks just like living a life that I could relate to that's what appealed to her about reservation, you know, cause she definitely came from this generation of like dances with wolves and like last of the Mohicans was like the films that like for her, Oh, this is what native life is like. <laughs> and it's, it's so, that's not what it's like. And, and also made by like Kevin Costner and like Daniel Day Lewis and so people who are absolutely like not native and and she like fully recognizes that now because she's been presented with these images and these representations that are like more realistic more authentic I like that you mentioned those two films I've never even seen them I never related to what they looked like but they also look really boring and <laughs> maybe <I'm Yes>. wrong, <laughs> but yeah. I've never given them my time. I can tell you you're not missing much. <laughs> Are they both Academy Award winning films? Maybe. They could be. Which, let's not hold too much stock into the Academy yeah. Awards. But yeah, they're just so indicative of what mainstream media wanted to call representation. It worked for them in the 80s and the 90s, and I don't know that it works anymore. I haven't seen it either, but I Yellowstone is a big deal, so maybe it does work now. So maybe you were <laughs> wrong, actually. Yeah, that's a good works point. Works for some people. I've not, not interviewed anyone yet. I do know that Yellowstone is a big deal. It's had all of these spinoff series. It's, like, responsible for 75% of Paramount Plus income oh my uh, gosh Ooh. maybe that's like a part two that we like unpack yellowstone, yeah. like you the can, yellowstone multiverse you can do yellowstone and killers of the flower moon which i also haven't seen but same i've heard i i guess while we're on the topic i've heard mixed reviews i don't know what what you've heard yeah yeah likewise 
And I, Lily Gladstone is also in Reservation Dogs, and she's in also in Fancy Dance, which is one of the films we might end up talking about. But so she is a pillar in the Native film community, but she's the star in Killers of the Flower Moon. And I know that there's a lot of people who support the film and support her, but there's also other people who are not into it. But I can't speak to it myself personally because I haven't seen it. But I know there's it's a mixed bag of how people feel about it. But overall, I'm hearing more positive things than negative. But of course, it is made by Martin Scorsese, who is a white male filmmaker. (laughs) It's a tough thing to be like, yes, we want representation on screen. And seeing yourself on screen in some capacity is always like a positive thing in some way. Or maybe not always a positive thing, but I don't know. It's something, but do we want to keep supporting people behind the screen behind the camera who are not us I don't know it's a complicated conversation for sure that doesn't have an easy answer yes (laughs) I think you have really said it all (laughs) (laughs) agreed and I'm thinking more and more we might need to have a part two conversation where we (laughs) like maybe we both watch Killers of the Flower Moon and then like reconvene Um, and Yellowstone Uh, But you mentioned Fancy Dance, and I know that you talked with filmmakers. Yes. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Erica Tremblay. She, yeah, we can talk about, if you wanted to talk about, there's a couple of films, a film and a series that both premiered at Sundance this year that focused on missing and murdered Indigenous women, which I thought was really cool that those series and film got attention in in such a big way with getting premieres at Sundance is amazing and highlighting a topic that was getting more and more talked about but again is like a new thing in widespread media. Fancy Dance is a fictional film which I think is cool because it's not just like a docu-series taking missing murder indigenous women and making it a little bit more accessible in a lot of ways by making it um, a feature fictional film and the filmmaker Erica Tremblay what I think is really cool about her is she is a first-time feature filmmaker but she's 42 years old and I interviewed her I'm a contributor for something called Cinema Femme Magazine which is an online publication and I interviewed her for that and one of the big focuses of our conversation were just like how no one was taking her seriously and she didn't want to be a first-time filmmaker at 42 but literally could not get the opportunities and funding to do so until now so in addition to fancy dance there was murder and bighorn at Sundance, like i mentioned which was made by roselle benali who's another female filmmaker and she actually made the series as her thesis project for nyu film school for the graduate program, which I just think is amazing. People who are going to NYU are, ma- are legitimate filmmakers, but just the idea that this Showtime series is, in a way, a school project is incredible <laughs> to me. Yeah. So you can see it on Showtime, and it's a limited series. I want to say there's maybe five episodes tops. I can't remember exactly, but they showed... The series at Sundance this year, and she came, and I spoke with her for Cinema Femme magazine as well. And, you know, my conversation for Fancy Dance really focused on Erica Tremblay's lack of opportunity as a filmmaker 
a native filmmaker, especially a female filmmaker. And then with Rizal, what we really talked about was the importance of native representation behind the camera when making native stories. Murder in Bighorn kind of in a simple way is a true crime series in in a lot of ways, which is a huge market these days. There's definitely issues with people being, people's stories being exploited, things being glorified, the entire genre just being taken too far and making uncomfortable works about really tragic things. And with Roselle, she was, you know, really able to tell stories about missing and murder Indigenous women while making it so that the families were, first of all, agreeing to their stories being told and being treated with care and also just being able to connect with another Native person and know that, like, their story was going to be told in a respectful way. She would do have conversations with them before shooting, but also sage the space with them before and after and really provide a safe space for everyone to share their emotions and their stories, which I think is really important. Because if you're having like a non-Native crew come in, they're probably not going to connect with those families in the same way, or they might not even connect with the families at all, to be honest. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of, especially true crime doc series or podcasts or whatever that are not connecting with the still living family and friends and they're feeling exploited. And I think that Murder and Bighorn is very different in that way. It's an ethically made series, which I think is really great. So both about missing and murder indigenous women, but really two different focuses on like the purpose behind the screens as to, or not the purpose, but like an added layer of like why those were groundbreaking. Thank you for sharing those two in particular. As you were speaking, I was thinking about some representations of what mainstream media is portraying as like this epidemic of violence against women in Indigenous communities. I'm thinking in particular of this series, Three Pines, and it's based off of a novel, a series of novels about a Canadian Native American community trying to come to terms with the deaths of community members. It got like some initial accolades for like bringing light to this issue. It just aired for like eight episodes for one season on Amazon Prime. But yeah, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, I think folks had like good intentions with producing this kind of content, but then it ended up being, I think one of the reasons it was canceled is because it did the thing that so many folks were worried about, which is it sensationalized real stories and real tragedy. And it didn't do justice in the ways that a docu-series with an impact producer could have done. So yeah, I I just wasn't sure if you had heard about this or other similar type shows. I've heard of Three Pines and I was looking it up as you're talking about it and I am not super familiar with it. 
sensationalized media, especially in the realm of true crime, is problematic. And I was a fan of true. I still am a fan of true crime stuff, and I listen to podcasts like My Favorite Murder. And the more I have listened, though, and watched things, I'm starting to dissect like, why am I into this, and is this okay? There's a film coming out right now that I'm really interested in seeing that I haven't seen yet called Subject. And it's a documentary that focuses on documentary subjects and the ethics behind that. And the filmmaker, I cannot remember her name, but she's the daughter of the people who are the focus of the um, docuseries called The Staircase. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a film about, I I watched it a while ago. It's a docuseries about a man who murders his wife and she's the daughter of those people. And so she reached out to a bunch of people who are also the subjects of different famous films and docuseries. So I'm very curious to see that. I know that's getting a bit off topic because it's not native focus, but I do think it's relevant in the kind of true crime world of what is ethical filmmaking and that's why I think Rizal's series Murder and Bighorn is so important to have that representation behind screen because I know from speaking to her that she made it ethically and like with consent from people and you know with care to their stories. Yeah I'll leave it to you with the time we have left if there was any like questions you had for me or stuff that you particularly wanted to like raise or elevate with the time we have left yeah I think one thing from my background with working at different film festivals one thing that's cool is that there's different native focused film festivals out there that I wanted to mention I've never been to any of them in person but I do think that it's cool that they exist. So these are festivals that are like run by Native people and really are for Native people. Anyone can go to them, but it's just highlighting Native stories, which I think is really amazing. So one that just happened was Illuminative. And then there's an organization called Vision Maker, and they have a Vision Maker film festival. And there's the LA Skins Fest. And there's honestly, there's like a whole handful from around America and Canada So I just think that it's cool to like, if you're interested in seeing more Native series or films, that's like a kind of a good starting point is to go to these different organizations and film festivals and see what their lineup is. Like I know Fancy Dance has played at a bunch of these festivals on the circuits lately, just for an example of what kinds of films they're showing and the representation that they have. I just think that's something that's really cool. And then Sundance Film Festival, like the Sundance organization runs a bunch of different filmmaker labs, which are made to like foster whether it's directors or producers, they have different focuses and different lab focuses, but they have a Sundance native lab, which takes in like amateur native filmmakers and really helps them grow in their careers by they get to work with different mentors and show their work in progress and really have like hands-on assistance to help get their projects completed and out there in the world which I I just think that those things are really cool and it's really helping to expand uh, this community and put more native media out in the world 
Yeah, this is awesome. So <laughs> I like have been like furiously taking notes so that I can include some of these links in the show notes. And then, yeah, you and I should definitely follow up afterwards so I can make sure like I have the right links. But yeah, always happy to plug opportunities and resources for folks. If you're interested in hearing any of the interviews I've done with some of the makers that we've really highlighted on my podcast for real, I have an interview, like I said, with Sterling Harjo for Love and Fury. And at the end of the episode, he was just starting to to work on reservation dogs so we talk about it a tiny bit but not it was not the focus of the conversation and then I have interviews with Erica Tremblay and Roselle Benali for Cinema Fun magazine and I can send you those links you can include them in the show notes so those just all give broader context and go deeper into some of the things we talked about so those would be my plugs. And then hopefully there will be new episodes of Faux Real coming out in the somewhat near-ish future. <laughs> Yay! That's the, that's the plan. Thanks again to Dawn for being on the show. And as I mentioned earlier, I'll be sharing some of the resources that Dawn mentioned in show notes, as well as on the Unjuli Vision social media And thanks again for listening, friends. I've been your host, Anjali Mistra. Thanks to my guest, Don Borchard. And this episode was edited by Audrey Cornell. Anjali Vision is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time.